0: Tina Desiree
1: Berg, and welcome to The 34. Hi, Senator Sanders. My name is Kenneth Mejia. What advice do you have for young people like me who are running for Congress and want to help our nation with wealth and income
2: equality for all Great. and not just the privileged few? Well, Kenneth, congratulations. You're running for the right reason. What you have to do is go into your own heart. And you got to speak to the people in your community. And you have got to have the courage to feel the pain in your community.
1: We need the house, our women, our children, and our men living on the streets of Los Angeles.
0: This is amazing. See, this is what the political revolution is about. It's about people stepping up and being leaders. Parents
2: to the people. the people. Go knocking on doors. Talk to working people, the single moms, veterans. See if they're getting a fair shake. In other words, you have got to become imbued with a passion and then have the guts to stand up to powerful people. And not a lot of folks have that courage.
0: Kenneth Mejia with us, who is running as a congressional candidate under the Green Party ticket here in District 34. Welcome, Ken.
1: Hi, Tina. Welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. Um, I'm actually really excited to talk with you about your um, election cycle. When we first met, you were running as a writing candidate, and this was 2016 during the Bernie Sanders primary, and you were running as a writing candidate and as a Democrat. So tell us a little bit about your journey from becoming um from leaving the Democratic Party to becoming a Green Party candidate.
1: Right. So uh before I was a Green or any other party, I was a Democrat. And in twenty sixteen I actually was very inspired by Bernie that I was a politician who actually cared about people, they didn't care about corporations, and I was speaking to my values and to many people's values, especially the youth. And I was 25 at the time, and so I decided to run as a riding because I figured, all right, Bernie's going to win and make sure he has some help. So I did that, and then after 2016 happened with the primaries, how basically there was collusion amongst the DNC to rig it, uh, rig it against Bernie. But also, that's when I also realized that the Democratic Party wasn't for me. I mean, in the summer in Philly, when we tried to get them to add single-payer to the platform, they didn't. When we wanted them to stop taking corporate money to add it to their platform, they didn't want to do that. When we talked about, um, you know, a ban on fracking, they didn't want to do that. And so I just figure I, I need to find a party that works and has already standard my values, and that's when I found the Green Party, and that's when I joined right after the DNC. And since then, you know, they 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 have all the values that progressives stand for, Uh, The only difference is we're much smaller, and we don't have a lot of funding, so it's a little bit harder, and definitely more, uh, you know, organizational issues that uh, we we need to work on. But it is definitely the party that represents me,
0: right? And as a riding candidate, didn't you secure about two percent of the vote?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I got like over a thousand, one hundred forty-four, something like that, a thousand two hundred something around there.
0: That's pretty substantial at four. Yeah, for a month,
1: but... two months. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I remember when we were canvassing, we were taking your flyers along with the Bernie ones and handing them out. So, so that was a good start. Um, so now you're running as the Green Party candidate. You made it through the primary, and there was what 18 Democrats in the primary, and I think one Libertarian, something like this. So you know, yeah. Just... So
1: in, in 2017, yeah, we ran against. Um, there were twenty-four candidates, and 24. we got seventh, and we basically tied with we tied with fourth, fifth, and sixth because we all got five percent. So that was, that was last year, and so we did pretty well considering we did it as a green.
0: Mm-hmm. And so now it's you and Jimmy Gomez um, that are headed into the general on November 6th. and you know mm-hmm. J- Jimmy walks the progressive or he talks the progressive talk, but he doesn't walk the progressive walk. And when I say that, right. you know, we could have many examples. He's taken money from Anthem, uh, Verizon, Time Warner Cable, Monsanto, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, um, Lockheed Martin, Bank of America. These are just some of the ones that I'm yep. aware of. So he actually, when he gets- Navient. Pretty, yeah, yeah. Naviant. In fact, I wanted to ask you about Navient. Let's talk about that for a second. Navient, um, for folks that don't know, they are the biggest processor of student loan debt in the country,
3: At the California Department of Justice, we've worked hard to protect our students from unscrupulous businesses that would steal their American dream. Whether it's a for-profit college or a federal government contractor, no business gets to cheat our students and get away with it. This week, the state of California will be filing a lawsuit against Navient Corporation and its subsidiaries for misconduct in student loan servicing and in debt collection. We are announcing this lawsuit against the nation's largest student loan servicer for systematically and illegally failing our borrowers at all stages of the repayment process. Navient, which many of you may remember more by the former name Sally May, services and collects on approximately 12 million borrowers private and federal student loans including some one and a half million borrowers here in California. In our complaint we will allege that Navian and its subsidiaries, Pioneer and General Revenue Corporation, misled students on some very critical information, from their repayment options, to collection fees, to the rights of borrowers who have since become disabled.
0: So obviously, if you're taking money from them, you're not going to fight for things like College for All. What is your stance on that?
1: Of course, and and that's what a lot of liberal Democrats will do, especially if they visibly show that they're progressive. They'll sign on to a lot of bills Mm -hmm. that are good, but they know they won't pass. That's number one. And number two, they still take money from the people who are against that. So, you know, my take is that it's disappointing. They're the largest student debt collector. We live in a district where, you know, just one out of every five people have a college degree here. And, um what we need is to make college uh, a human right. And mm-hmm. you can't do that when you're taking it from these, these basically, right. these people, Navient is, is actually in a lawsuit. Um, where, you know, in California for a, a unlaw, unlawful business practices where basically um, mm-hmm. borrowers overpaid their student loans and Navient wasn't recording that. So it's like, how are you going to pay your education as a right and then sign on to something that you know that's not that's not going to pass, but also take money from the people who are against it.
0: Right, right. I, you know, I'm a strong believer that there so is we, quid yeah. pro quo. I mean, I don't understand why these candidates and Jimmy's guilty of this. He says all the time that there's no quid pro quo, but I don't believe it.
1: Right. Yeah. It is. and uh, that's why we're fighting for in our party fight for t- uh, tuition-free public college and canceling student debt.
0: Right, so now, you know, and on that note, I'm Gen X, you're a millennial, um, so I apologize to your generation as a Gen Xer because (laughs) there was a time when we had tuition-free public university, and whenever, you know, when Bernie brought this to the forefront of the conversation in 2016, I was very happy about that because I saw the digression where the, the defunding of the system had occurred. When I was a freshman at UC Irvine, my uh, tuition to make you have a heart attack was like $380 a quarter. That's it. And before that, it was even less. So my generation benefited from a subsidized public university system. Now these kids that are going at into UC Irvine, they're taking on, you know, 30-50k worth of debt a year just to be there. And this is public university. We're not even we're not even talking about the private ones, but part of the problem with the public universities is the states have definanced them to the point where they might as well be private. If you're getting, you know, 8 to 10% of the budget from the state at this point and you're relying on donors, whether they're corporate or alumni donors, you are sort of you know starting to function in that capacity as a private university, so it's not a good it's not a good thing because I think education is a um, investment in society, and I think it's something that we should prioritize instead of things like the military budget. Um, so let's talk about that for a moment. I know that um, you have some criticism about the military industrial uh, complex
1: you know military spending we spend over. Fifty percent of our discretionary budget on military spending. That we are bombing currently seven countries yeah. that we have no business in. Many of them are third world countries. So there really is uh, no reason for us to be uh, going out there except actually helping people. But we're not doing that. No, we're um, stealing resources. It is it, stealing resources exactly. <laughs> stealing resources and. And war is a business. It's, it's it's a profitable business, and it's subsidized by endless, unlimited spending by the U.S. government to companies like Boeing and Lockheed Martin, who are mm-hmm. donors of Jimmy Gomez, of course, yeah. Northrop, and and whatnot. And so, um, I believe that, like as you mentioned earlier, if we spend less on more, we could actually start spending on things like mm-hmm. education, on healthcare, mm-hmm. on housing. And, um, you know, stop aiding in the genocide of people living in different countries, like in Yemen, in Afghanistan, Iraq, and, and whatnot. And so I think um, we really need to have elected officials who really take a hard look and approach at where, we, where we're where we spending our money on currently. And, you know, where is it going to? Are we aiding in genocide? Are we aiding in in regime change? We have over what, 700 bases foreign-wide? Do we really need that? <laughs> you know, Do we really need to spend more than the next seven countries on military? Uh, no, we don't. And that's sort of where we'd come in in Congress. We'd definitely be a voice of reason. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, what, what uh, others are doing right now. I think there's only a few, it's like Tulsi and even Roe, who are speaking
0: out. No, there's very few. I mean, half the Democrat, no, what am I saying, half? Most, the majority of the Democratic Party is pro-war, I would say. They um, fully, including Jimmy Gomez, they fully concede this ground to the Republicans. And you mentioned something about the discretionary spending. I wanted to backtrack that on that for a second. There are two types of, and you're CPA, so you can maybe speak in more depth to this. There are two types of budgets. You have your discretionary side and your mandatory side. And I've often seen the argument where folks who want to dissuade this idea that we're spending too much on the military, they look at the Social Security and Medicare budgets and they say, but look how much bigger Social Security and Medicare are. Well, but that's on the mandatory side of the spending and their insurance uh, programs that are paid into. So you can't really make an accurate comparison between the military, which is the discretionary side. So have you had anyone um, try to argue that point with
1: you? Um, I've had some people say that, but, you know, like you said, discretionary budget. Congress actually votes on that and mm-hmm. decides, well, what's going to be spent? That's you weird. know, how much yeah. are we going to spend and what's it going to go to? Right. And, you know, just a, a few weeks ago, you know, Jimmy Gomez voted to increase military spending. So mm-hmm. over seven hundred sixteen billion. That's the same one that Bernie voted no against. Right. Um And you know, man- mandatory spending, like you said, we could cover that no matter what, and we we basically cover anything. But mandatory, you know, Social Security, Medicare, um, that are programs that we actually need uh, to survive. You know, right. I don't think we need war. No. <laughs> <I don't laughs> and energy change to survive. <laughs> In fact, <laughs> exactly. I think, if anything, that creates enemies for us. Exactly. And, um, Absolutely. It's fear. Up. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, you can't go around drone bombing children and civilians and expect there to be no blowback. That's the other side of the equation that I don't think people spend a lot of time thinking about. We create terrorists with our actions, but I'm pretty convinced... We do. I Yeah. I'm pretty convinced that a lot of Americans at this point are entirely clueless about what's going on.
1: We create terrorists, and then we also have, we create refugees and many democratic liberals. Even our friends are like, let's bring, still end up supporting these people who Mm vote to increase military spending. It's like, there's a cause and effect. There's There's a reason why they're coming here. That's Right. Right.
0: Right. And that whole um, the immigrant uh, caravan that's been in the news the last few days, I've been a little bit uh, mm-hmm. have to sigh. I've been a little bit upset by some of the posts that I mean, I, I expect the GOP to be racist in its nature. I get really upset yeah. though when I see people that self-identify um, with being on the left sort of buying into the same arguments like a lot of these folks. We're using the terms like fruit pickers, um, gardeners, like, maids, and like economy,
1: yeah,
0: I And I was like, I was reading, like, what you you have to go? They have to be your most humble servant. They can't possibly be doctors, lawyers, and such. Like you're automatically assuming because they're from Honduras or some um, place in Central America that this is the case. And it, to me, it just feels like a casual form of racism. Have you been seeing that too?
1: Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I was just mentioning how we, many Americans, many on the left, are using jobs that are good for the economy, or they pay more in taxes and get less of the services, Mm -hmm. but don't get anything in return. I think we shouldn't be using human life or placing where different people come from as economic benefits, right? Right. Um, it's good. It, I mean that, like, people the people want to say that they are doing the jobs that they don't want to do here, gardening or picking fruit or whatnot. But you know that's a that's a bad equivalency to to mm-hmm. be putting that type of value on human lives in terms of coming to America. I mean, I think you know, Greens believe really that immigration is uh, a human right, especially yeah. you know on land land that is not even ours. And I think you'll get a lot of people on the left who'll say things like, uh, you know, this is indigenous land or what not, but they'll they're they're still not sure about welcoming immigrants in or uh you know, I just it just if you really the true liberation and for helping immigrants and humanity in general they're there really should be no no barriers, right? And I think um, that's why we we, we feel that human life shouldn't be valued based on the economic uh, worth that they do bring and whatnot. And I think um, that's where the conversation needs to be going. And you need to start believing more in the human race because I think what the scare tactic is from the right, and sometimes the left ball spirit, it's like, well, what about the criminals? What about the criminals? You know, that's... Yeah. Like I don't think about criminals when I think about immigrants. You know? right. Yeah, why do they automatically <laughs> uh, I mean, in that place? <laughs> Right, exactly. And I think even even the citizens commit higher rates of crime. That's exactly it's not it's not it. like yeah. an immigrant versus Right. It's not an immigrant versus uh you know, citizen versus non citizen thing. Right. It's literally a human thing and That's I think true. we exactly. we have to create the conditions. We create conditions in which people do commit violence, right? I mean, in America, we have so much wealth and income inequality. People don't have jobs. People are are paying so much for school, so they have to resort to crime. Or, you know, we we, we bomb a country in Iraq, so people come here and they're pissed off at us. Or we exploit Mexican farmers and pay them pennies, so then they have to sneak over here because they don't have an economy anymore in Mexico. You know, and then it's just like we bring about the fears we... We have, and right. so I think that's where we got to start changing the dialogue, including immigration.
0: Two hundred percent agree. Um, so you're a CPA, and I wanted to ask you. Um, so you have more intimate knowledge of the tax code than I do, and it seems to me that the recent tax scam bill that Trump and the GOP passed is ultimately going to lead to um, increases in middle class uh, taxes. For example, I know union dues will no longer be a write-off, um, et cetera, et cetera. You can go down the list. So it seems to me that come next tax uh, day, there's sort of going to be some sort of a reckoning where people finally maybe make the realization that the plutonomy is the plutonomy and they're just going to keep extracting wealth from the middle class. What is your take on that? Um, are you seeing in your practice um, any worry about next year's tax bill or No.
2: At this point, I would recognize Ranking Member Sanders for an opening statement. Uh, Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, As you know, this is one of the most important pieces of legislation to come before this committee in recent years. And I have to tell you that I am extremely disappointed uh, that you have allocated only 15 minutes for debate. And that means that there are 11 Republicans on your side, 10 Democrats, on my side, who will not have the opportunity to give their opinions about this bill before a vote is cast. Uh, that is wrong, and it is wrong that the Budget Committee has not yet held a single hearing on this tax bill, not one. But I have to say that I do understand why the Budget Committee, and in fact the Finance Committee, has been so reluctant to hold public hearings. To engage the american people in this debate and that is because this legislation is the a disastrous and unfair piece of legislation which gives huge tax breaks to the people who need it the least the very very wealthy it raises taxes on millions of middle-class families at a time when the middle class is struggling it leaves 13 million more Americans without health insurance, while raising premiums 10% a year when we are already paying far higher prices for health care than any other country on earth. It raises the deficit by $1.4 trillion. You know, how many hours have I sat here and have you sat there? And we've seen all the charts and all the discussions about how terrible the deficit is, what it means leaving this burden to our kids and our grandchildren. We heard all of that rhetoric year after year, and now we have a bill that raises the deficit by $1.4 trillion. And let me be very clear. In my view, I have not the slightest doubt that if this bill, God forbid, is passed, as soon as it is passed, the Republican leadership will come back and say, my God, we have to deal with the deficit, and that's why we're going to cut Social Security Medicare, Medicaid, and education. Unfortunately, Mr. Chairman, what the rhetoric that we have been hearing from the President and the Republican leadership is very much opposite to what is true. President, Republican leadership have said this is a tax program to benefit the middle class, yet 87 million more middle-class households will see their taxes go up right. while sixty two percent of the benefits flow to the top one percent top one percent sixty two percent of the benefits eighty seven million middle-class families pay more in taxes
1: um, in terms of uh, the tax cuts a lot of people especially lower and middle-income classes they saw their paychecks rise a little bit right um, but, but what we're actually going to see and what is actually happening is that the greatest benefit is not going to the majority of us and it's actually going to the top one percent right so you're seeing all these tax cuts you saw the corporate tax rate drop from close to 40 percent to down to 20 or 18% right now. So you see these giant corporations uh, paying nothing in taxes or very, or very little. And even before they weren't even paying anything because they have uh they, they, they take advantage of the intricate tax codes that we have. Um, but what we see is that they're throwing these, they're throwing scraps at us. And I think, when you are so beat down and people are poor, when you get like a $40 increase in your paycheck or a $50 paycheck or $50 increase in your paycheck, you think like, Oh my God, Trump is amazing. He's doing this. But when you see those at the top and, and don't get me wrong, like for some people, like that's a lot of money, but, but what people need to realize is that they're getting scraps. They're not getting right. They're getting scraps. They're not, they're not getting what the, uh, where the real benefit is going and that's, and that's all at the uh, top percent, you know, yes. <laughs> and, and still, to, and and even before the tax cuts, people were many investors in wall street and companies are making a lot of their money on investment income yeah. because they tax capital, um, gains, yeah. capital gains at lower, uh, lower okay. rates than, uh, Way lower. than ordinary income. And so, you know, and that's why Bernie was fighting the tax uh, capital gains at ordinary income. It's like when Warren Buffett said his he paid a smaller effective tax rate than mm-hmm. his uh, secretary. secretary. Mm-hmm. And that's true. And so, you know, so this tax cut, $2 billion goes to the rich. Um, who makes up for that? You know, that's spending, that, that's spending for social services that, that are foregone I go to uh subsidize the rich. And so yeah. um what you'll see is inequality grow even more. I think so too. Um, over the next um because wages will remain this remain the same. You know, you'll get like a little bump in your income. But
0: But it again, won't even work to it. upset what we're gonna have to pay next. Like so I just had my I'm okay, so this is like a, a confession. I'm one of these folks that file an extension. <laughs> I finally play in October. It's like my pattern. It's not the best pattern, but it's something I've grown accustomed to doing. And, uh, you know, as I was meeting with my accountant, he was telling me um, all of the write-offs that I would normally get that were disappearing. And I said, so give me a rundown compared to what I paid this year What's the difference going to be next year with these new tax laws? And he pretty much told me I'm going to be paying 2 k more a year in taxes. So I'm thinking to myself, people don't really realize this that are in the middle class. They're losing. Even if you've got, like you said, it's true, you get this $40, $50 pay increase, which is really nothing. It's going to be massively offset by all of these new, th- these new things that kick in next year. And I keep thinking, like, Uh for example, if you can't write off your union dues, that's a big chunk of the middle class. You have the firemen, you have the policemen. All of these folks have been in the past writing off their union dues. I wonder if they are aware yet that that's going away, just one thing that I'm thinking about. So I'm hoping that maybe there'll be a day of reckoning in the sense when folks get this tax bill and they see it, like, there it is in black and white, then maybe they'll finally go shit <laughs> the plutonomy is screwing me over. Am I wrong?
1: Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and people are people are far falling for the uh, the the quick fix, the the increase in their paychecks and whatnot but don't realize that um you yeah. know like you said there's some deductions that you guys can't do anymore. Um, yeah. And it's it's really sad because uh, people are going to be uh, pretty uh, pretty upset when they find out <laughs> that it's right? really so not going to be helping
0: us in the long run. No, right? <laughs> no, right? So I'm hoping that maybe this will be the final thing that gets people to get a little bit more aware that this isn't necessarily a Republican versus a, de- versus a Democrat thing, that both uh, parties are handing over our government to the corporate oligarchy, and it's um, gotten to the point where it's just really not tenable at this. It's just crazy. Anyway, um, so you're also running as a Medicare for All candidate. Um, how do you how do you see Medicare for All as being more economically efficient?
1: Yeah, I mean, in terms of economically efficient, right now, many of us get our health insurance through private uh, health insurance companies. Um, right now, number one, it is expensive to pay your paycheck premiums, you know, a lot of people are paying anywhere between 50 to 100 in, uh, in, in biweekly uh, paychecks. They have to pay co-pays and they have to reach a deductible, let's say like five grand in order for the health insurance to kick in. And sometimes they don't even cover 100 percent, they'll only cover 90. So what you notice is that when you add up the cost of how much you end up paying, and then you know we're not even talking about all the times where you have to call different doctors to see if you're covered. How many times you have to wait on the line to see if your health insurance company will cover this, or making sure with your doctor that there's no hidden cost, which there always is a hidden cost. You know, they just it's just so inefficient. And when you have a Medicare for all system, you're doing away with all that. You don't have to call people. There are no premiums or copays. You don't have to make sure that you're getting secretly charged or anything because there will be a pool of funds already that, you know, I think Bernie's was 2% tax uh, on people that you would pay into, but you would see that it would be a lot less than what you pay in a year. And what, what I try to tell people as a CPA, and and by the way, I'm also, uh, I'm a financial accountant, CPA, not a tax CPA. So, (laughs) so, you know, but, uh, but, 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 um, but what I tell people though, is that you have to look at, how much you're gonna be spending over a year. And once you do that breakdown or that analysis, then you'll really know how much you are um, saving or spending more of. And that's sort of what we did is if you take all that you're paying for in, under the current system and you were to apply that to a Medicare for All system, you'd actually be spend a lot less and it would be way easier. I mean, it it, it doesn't make sense because every other industrialized country has this, you know, and people like to say, well, oh, there's gonna be long wait times, and then if you talk to people, people wanna be doctors, people wanna be nurses, but they can't afford to be because college is so expensive, that's where tuition free public college comes in. That's where we could create more jobs. We can create more construction for hospitals and, and, it, you know, everything's just so interconnected that Medicare for all can really, um, you know, fix. And, uh, we got to move towards that because the current system, not one reason for bankruptcy in America is healthcare bills. And even if you're making over 50,000 or a hundred thousand, you could still fall under. And um, that's the sad part
0: about... Um... Yeah, no, this is true. It is the number one cause of bankruptcy. It's frightful. And, uh, you know, the current Medicare plans, uh, Medicare system operates at a 2 to 3% overhead. And your average corporate um, private health insurer operates at about 30% overhead. So it is way more economically efficient. Um, and, yeah, no, the whole, like... I'm socialized medicine. You have long lines. It's like totally bullshit. Uh, My family's from Sweden and nobody waits in long lines for things. They just go to the doctor. It's really that simple. Anywho, I'm, I wanted to ask you about prop 10. I went to the last uh, town hall meeting and Wendy Carrillo's deputy told me that she does not support overturning Costa Hawkins, um, which kind of blew my mind i'm like how could you not support this so um i'm glad that we have prop 10 on the ballot because this gives us it's direct democracy and it gives us the ability to do that without relying on the state um congress uh now what's your stance on prop 10
1: my stance on prop 10 is vote yes on prop 10
0: (laughs) that's a good stance i like that stance uh you know we have a really we have a really bad problem with affordable housing, um, and district our district has, you know, we have an area in which we should maybe go back and talk a little bit about how we got to this place. Um, and you spoke about this the other night. We passed this bill that pretty much took away the power of local municipalities to do rent control or rent stabilization laws. And when that happened, there were caps on the ages of the building. Um, I think 1994 was the standard, but in some areas it went down to like the late 60s, 1967, 1978. 78, 78, is that what it was? Yeah. Okay. So,
2: um,
0: but what, you know, what happened was a lot of real estate developers that were really excited about um, Costa Hawkins went in and bought these old buildings, tore them down and rebuilt uh, new ones simply to get out of the damn rent control laws. So you ended up with, in in our district, in downtown Los Angeles, all these areas that have been deeply gentrified uh, with very right. small amounts of affordable housing. The reason people ask about Santa Monica all the time, Santa Monica has much stricter zoning laws, so you can't really go into... Yeah, and they up. have rent control. They have, but <laughs> they yes, have they control. do. But the reason they get around Costa Hawkins is because you can't tear down all those old buildings and rebuild them. They don't have the zoning laws to allow for it the, the way downtown L.A. did. See what I'm saying?
1: Right. I mean, um, District 34 is probably the battleground district in California or in L.A. for gentrification. Mm-hmm. And like you, like you said, that Costa Hawkins Act was passed with basically real estate money from realtors and developers, not from common folk. Right. And I think that's where uh, a lot of the opposition is trying to use is like, "Oh, it hurts, it hurts mom and pop landlords." It's a <laughs> lie. Yeah, it uh, a it's lie. Big a big lie. Um, <laughs> and more people are getting this place than than the buildings uh, that are being brought up. And many of the new buildings you know, over 90% are market rate luxury housing that people cannot afford. So it's only right that we at least repeal the law that, is expanding rent control to cities uh, to have that power because they're the ones who really see it. And, you know, I don't even have, to be honest, I don't even have a lot of faith in the L.A. City Council to <laughs> that when it does pass or if it does get repealed, that they'll expand the years. You know, maybe they'll just go, okay, we'll go to 1995 like the regular. Like, no, you need to go higher. There's a, a huge affordable housing shortage here, and that's why we really need to look at different models that have, fixed shortages and and have uh, housing as the as a human right as a principle, and that's what they do in Europe and in, in cities or in countries in Austria, like in Vienna. Vienna is the most perfect example that even uh, that that even HUD uh, exemplifies as a great model for public housing. And there, they basically build public housing that is uh, built and controlled by the government. If anything, they they give subsidies to nonprofits and. Uh, uh, public entities to build the housing, but it's not by these large Wall Street firms or real estate firms or people from China or or other countries. It's actually done by and funded by uh, the the government. So that's what we need to do because rent control is one issue. Rent control keeps people in the community. What quality public housing does is that it builds more, and that's the biggest fear that people have, that there won't be enough to be built.
0: Yeah, no, and that's a valid point. And in fact, if you look at the money that's pouring into the no on Prop 10 campaign, it's Essex Property Trust, it's Equity Residential, Western National Group. These are Wall Street backed uh, REITs. They're they're designed to <laughs> It's exactly what you said, it's Wall Street money. So they yeah, this is not going to hurt any mom and pop landlords. I'm, you know, I'm guessing that most mom and pop landlords actually might have older buildings that are still covered under rent control anyway so that's a really bad argument i'm glad you brought it right. i want to
1: mention one thing about also current rent control laws a lot of also people bring up that oh well we can't make improvements that's a lie under current <laughs> rent control laws <laughs> is that lie. if there are capital improvements if there are improvements to the the, the apartment complex the landlord can charge a difference in an increase Yeah. so it, it is covered, you know. Yes, it's not yeah. like, oh, we're not going to make any improvements, uh, so we're not going to make it better. Like, no, you can, and it it makes sense, <laughs> you know. Right, like, right. I get that. Like, you made an improvement, you, you know, you did this, you added a section here, or whatnot. Right. Like, that that makes economic sense. So that's also another fear that we need to let people know is that under current rat control laws that you can make improvements in charge, you know. Mm-hmm reasonably higher to cover that cost.
0: Indeed. Um so you were an activist with the LA Tenants Union um and they tried they did this thing that I thought was really interesting in um, was it Boyle Heights or Echo Park? I can't recall. But they secured a uh, of Oh, Boyle Heights, Westlake, yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit about that story because it's a fabulous story.
1: Right. So in Boyle Heights, the uh there were tenants at a building near Mariachi that we're getting eighty percent rent increases, and it's not even under rent control. But there these tenants; they lived here their whole entire life. Many of them working class, Latinx the families. They weren't going to leave, and so the community joined in in solidarity, and we used real grassroots activism to win. Um, you know, so number one, they did a rent strike where they would held their rent. And uh, number two, we did a lot of media blasting, media shaming. Um, We were constantly having news crews covering uh, a protest and whatnot of the tenants. We were putting up signs letting the entire community in Boyle Heights know that there are these vulture corporate landlords who were taking over and displacing our community. So they got involved. And number three, we actually went to the landlord's nice mansion on the west side um, and we, people, you know, we we went there, we protested, like, three times, uh, we told their neighbors, uh, this is your neighbor, <laughs> and we were basically shaming him, and we were, like, chanting on his block, like, every couple of weeks, and he finally budged, and they ended up getting from 80% to a 5% rent increase over uh, the next three years, so they ended up building a collective bargaining agreement, and... That is basically grassroots activism at work, right? Because um, you don't you don't want to be that that person who's known for destroying a community and displacing many people. So, you know, that was it was really community power and and people coming together that made that happen.
0: I fully endorse Slumlord
1: shaming
0: you not feel sorry for them yeah no no lords need to go down i mean honestly you know if you look at um i worked on uh a few years back when i was a public policy director for a nonprofit. we worked on affordable housing bonds and issues and things and i took a tour of one of the sros uh downtown <clears throat> and it was absolutely one of the most appalling places i've ever been in there was Cockroaches and all kinds of bugs, just like millions of them running around. There was holes in the walls. There was mildew everywhere. There was one apartment that had no ceiling. Like if you looked up, you would see the plumbing in the bathtub for the unit directly above. You know, and these <laughs> people are paying rent to live in under these conditions. It's unfucking believable. And seeing, I think mm-hmm. seeing that really kind of changed like really changed my viewpoint on this i mean i was always very leftist as it was but this sort of brought the whole made the whole thing super clear about how fucked up some of these slumlords really are and the woman that own the building lives in this exceedingly wealthy neighborhood in the bay area um and you sort of think to yourself wow you you don't even care you don't care about your tenants you don't care about the condition of the building And um, she ended up having to pay a massive lawsuit. The the inner city law center went after her as a slumlord, and they they won a major um, several million dollar tenant lawsuit, which was a good thing. But it sort of gives you a perspective when you see this stuff of how... um, you know you as a person you want you sort of want to believe that people are like you and and they're good people and they want to do the right thing in the world and they have empathy for their fellow humans but then you realize that that's just not true and it's sort of life-shattering in a way does that make sense right yeah so no
1: you're you're 100
0: correct yeah so i'm fully endorsing shaming slumlords totally down with that um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so what is what would you say your biggest difference is between you and uh Jimmy Gomez? Cuz Jimmy he professes to be a progressive. Um I feel that He's not as authentic as you are, but how do you perceive the difference?
2: I need someone to bring me to life. I really do believe that our people deserve a
1: chance because life is so hard. It's time we take a stance. We don't want freebies, we just want to advance and help out one another to grow and enhance. For the past 20 years, our costs have been rising. Our pay remains the same, and I assure you, we're trying. Trying so hard to live and catch a breath. Trying to survive, but working out since the death Try to go to school, but add the thousands in debt And then trying to pay it off, and then this job is market. And I'm trying to pay off these damn medical bills But they keep stacking up like a freaking hill Expensive health insurance, what we see every day High premiums, deductibles, we simply cannot pay And living in L.A., we need a living wage So it's time for better days, so let's turn the
0: page for
1: Yeah, I mean, for him, it's very easy to vote the right way, you know, be a co-sponsor on progressive bills that won't pass. Mm -hmm. But, you know, number one, we could do that, too. But he takes corporate funds from those same people and corporations who oppose things that he stands for, like Medicare for all or college for all. And, uh, you know, that's that's the biggest one is he doesn't actually even go after many of these health insurance companies or right. these debt collectors, even though he stands for that. So number two, we also push harder on issues that he doesn't even want to touch, like rent control. He hasn't even, he hasn't even made a position on Prop 10. Right. I mean, this district needs rent control. Yeah. So we push harder on issues like more radical uh, solutions like rent control quality public housing like Vienna 100% clean renewable energy by 2030 uh closing all military bases world uh internationally you know just taking these more big bold stances mm-hmm. So that's where we differ on uh number 2 and then n- number 3 um you know we we don't we're not obligated to stay in line with uh the party you know as long as we well, as long as we fight for our communities and what's right, and that's really what Greens are doing, um, you know, that's what Democrats and Republicans don't have that luxury of doing. They have to always be in lockstep with their party, mm-hmm. and uh, that's that that's that's where we come in as well. You need another voice of reason. You uh, know, that's why Bernie is an independent. You know, slash yeah. <laughs> helping the Democrats, and then number four, you know. On, on some voting too will differ, differ, like me and Jimmy, you know, like he voted to fund DHS and I, he voted to increase military spending. He, uh, he voted to, uh, to penalize and punish nonviolent protests of Israel. He voted no against, um, prison reform. Um, he didn't vote or, or he missed the vote on the Blue Lives Matter bill which he should have voted, you know, no on. But it's like it's like it's like, you know, and that's sort of also where we differ too on votes. Um uh, but we also need uh, a congressperson or someone in there who's uh who's willing to use their power, their position and their privilege to organize communities. And that's what you don't see. You don't see political politicians organizing on the ground here. Like they just want us here to be just show up to women's marches and march for our lives and march, you know, just all these marches. But they don't want us to do any real groundwork to change um, systemic um, issues that we have right. here, like poverty. And, um, you know, they just say, "Yo, just trust me. That's why I'll fight for you in Congress. It's like <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to organize our communities. We're going to win the next neighboring district and use this as an organizing tool. Because, you know, in Congress, we need a majority to pass laws, and there's no way in hell one green is going to do all that. So.
0: But you're authentic. I don't think Jimmy's authentic. <laughs> like, when you say what you say, I believe you mean it. Like, you, I, I, you're I, you like Bernie. I know you're authentic. And, you know, you mentioned he's he's just a politician. He's a typical politician. You mentioned him abstaining yeah. from a vote. This is the classic right. move, he's, and I don't know that He's
1: people... a bare minimum Democrat.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so— I mean, when I was um, when I was public policy director, I would I would go to D.C. and I would knock on their doors and I would I would you know do a form of lobbying for whatever I was working on. Um, you know, I wasn't paid. I was on the board of directors for a nonprofit, so this was a, a volunteer position. But I I did that stuff, and there were there were Congress folks that would say to me, "Will you be okay if I abstain?" And I knew I was never going to get a yes from them. So I, my response was like, yes, I'll take that as a win. So I know when Jimmy says or when you tell me that Jimmy didn't show up for a vote, he, he's like playing politics. You know, he's not really standing for anything. <sighs> Very frustrating. Um, so I want to talk. Right. About,
1: exactly. Yeah.
0: I want to talk about Charter Amendment uh, B as well, because I think this is an important thing that we're doing here in the city of L.A., um, so Charter Amendment B would remove a hurdle that would allow us to um, have a discussion on having a public bank, having a municipal bank here for the city of L.A., which is something we should absolutely do. We could use it to, like you were talking about earlier, how we need to do public housing. You know, right now we're paying, God, I, you know, I had the data yesterday, $100 million a year to Wall Street for our, our bond issues. In and interest, yeah. Yeah. Like, we – so, you know – I couldn't find a lot of no arguments. I think uh, most folks are on board with this idea. But the LA Times did run it, one op-ed, and it was just a very dogmatic um, criticism, saying, like, well, can we trust the government? Can we? And, you know, you read this stuff, and you're thinking, like, well, we already know we can't trust Wall Street. <laughs>
1: like, right.
0: Right? And, so, and,
1: um, and yeah, yeah, that's where and, a lot is. You know, you'll, even, you'll, you'll even hear that from conservatives, liberals, and even right. people on the left because they hate city council <laughs> and the right. mayor. And yeah. so they're like, wait a second, we're going to give right. it to them? Right. And that's sort of where we come in. We run <laughs> candidates to take over
0: that. No, Kenan, you're right, because it's this it's this sort of dogmatic idea that government boo at private corporations, yay, and, which is so funny Fucking stupid! Uh, superficially, you have to understand that that the opposite can be true in both directions. You can have bad government stuff, bad politicians, but don't tell me there aren't bad CEOs in private corporations. Are you kidding me? Open your eyes. So this to me isn't an argument. It's a it's a non sequitur. Um, but where do you stand on the charter? I'm assuming you support it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm for uh, I'm for it. Uh, we need to put yes on it. Like I said, we're paying bank fees we're paying interest for banks to handle our money um when we could basically have a public entity like a public bank Mm -hmm. like they do have in north dakota right we're in control of the money we don't have to charge interest to repay interest to big banks who are profitable already to handle our money or to get loans from we could just get it from ourselves yeah and um I'm all for it, you know, I'm all for getting away from privatized uh, uh banking to be honest, yeah um, me we too. just you know we just we just need to have people who are in office who oversee that that actually are gonna use that in the right places, you know, yeah. it's not all on the police but on affordable housing and whatnot yeah
0: no you're right what you're saying is we need to be able to trust the system because there can always be a bad politician but the way they want to set it up with a uh with a board or whatever else i mean like people are people people can be shitty and we have to so which is why we have to be able to trust the systems so, but i you know look it's saying just because it's government it's going to be bad it's just ridiculous because corporations are chock full of corruption so it's <laughs> it just doesn't make sense so what other parts of your platform um, that are important to you have we not discussed yet?
1: Mm, I mean, we talked about health care, about housing. We talked yeah. about uh, the environment, uh, education. Uh, electoral reform is a big one. Oh, yes. Let's that's talk how about a lot that. Of...
0: So what, yeah,
1: talk to me about electoral so reform. That is something we <laughs> <Yeah>. need. <laughs>
0: this is a big one.
1: Yeah, I mean, electoral reform is that that barrier or that thing you have to cross to sort of shape the policies right. and get politicians in office. So, you know, our, our, our platform stands for rank choice voting or you rank your candidates, not, you know, you pick one and whoever gets the most wins. We're for proportional representation mm-hmm. where depending on how much percentage of the vote you get, you or your party get a certain amount of seats or, uh, representation in a legislative body, so that would be more representative because it would give us more than two parties, and I think that's what we need. We need uh, more, more demo- more, more democracy in our electoral system, and that's one of the reasons why voter turnout is so low yeah. in America because people are dissatisfied, and you know it's been said over a majority of people want an independent third party. And, you know, that's where we come in as well. We also want to have automatic voter registration. You mm-hmm. can show up and vote no matter what. Um, we also want to fight for public campaign uh, uh, financing where there's no big, no big money at all. Right. Um, you might be even be given a certain amount of money to compete with your your uh, opposition, and that would make things much fairer. So, you know, those are just some of the big things that we fight for. Electoral
0: yeah, and I think I agree with you on ranked choice voting. I would like to see that um, instituted. Um, now, you also brought up the uh, proportional representation um, conversation. It, so it sounds almost like um, the Green Party wants to move towards what sounds a little bit more like a parliamentary system. Is is that how you would describe it?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, in terms of our uh, in terms of our legislative body. Uh, Yeah, I mean, we we would definitely have more different parties, and and in the parliamentary system, you have a coalition. Mm -hmm. And that's what we need. We need coalition governments, not just one or the other, which is what we have now. Coalition governments, you have multiple ideologies and a compromise.
0: Right. Like, I would like, you know, and I, and I think that we can have that conversation just with solidarity issues in the country. Like, I don't understand Democrats that scream at Green Party people. Green Party people, if you're a Democrat, are, they are your people. So we need to learn how to coal- coalition build on the left, I think. The, the real Dem thing just slays me. I'm like, Bernie Sanders isn't a real Dem. I'm like, yeah, but Joe Manchin is. Do I need to say anything further? <laughs> You know, we coalesce around ideas. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So um, let me ask you the most important question. Um, Are you guys still taking campaign donations? And if so, where can our listeners go to donate money to your campaign if they're interested?
1: Yeah, we're taking money um, up until the election. Maybe even after if you have any fees. But it really helps us with sending out communication, uh, you know, emails, texts. Mm-hmm. Uh, flyers, reimbursements for volunteers, like with food. Mm-hmm. Um, we like to take care of our, our volunteers. Uh, we're 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 all 100 percent doing this on our own time. I yeah. still work. People are students, workers, yeah. retired, or unemployed. And so, please donate at That's Mejia for Congress dot com. That's M E J I A the number four Congress dot com. And uh, yeah, you can donate there.
0: And what's your Twitter handle if people want to follow you?
1: It's at for congress
0: Right, 25. <laughs> that's so fun. That's right. I was looking for your handle the other night, and I kept typing in 34, and then I remembered, oh, no, that was the original. Um, you were originally running for. <laughs> um,
1: I think people got used to twenty five yeah. for congress They are like, oh, yeah, that, that, that's, that's the guy. I'm like, yep, that's me. Right.